Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. My name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as a lead pastor here at Harvest. And even though I'm dressed like it's a church picnic day, I just felt like when I saw the weather and how hot it was going to be, my being somewhat comfortable and happy was more important than being encased in formal clothing today. So I just, uh, please excuse the informal nature of my dress today, but um, I want to wrap up this morning a series we've been on for a while on faith. And the word faith is one of those words that um, is thrown about in church all over the place. Uh, But it's a word I think is not as easy to truly grasp as we like to think. Faith is not something that we conjure up, but it's a response to something real. We only lay hold of faith when we actually see a God who inspires faith. Now, I'm Asian. I don't know if you could tell. Anyone? Yeah? I'm Asian, and what I learned from childhood was that everything is possible if you just try really hard. And that if you don't make it, it's because you didn't try hard enough. But I think faith is very different than that. I don't think we produce faith by trying really hard. I think we produce faith by seeing God. And when you see God, faith will arise. This is the seventh and final message in our series on faith. And we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11 one of the most beautiful surveys of the heroes of faith who are part of our spiritual heritage. And we're going to look at verses 32 to 40, and here's how they read. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. As Hebrews chapter 11 and our series on faith draws to a close, 
the writer says something that I think most people wish preachers would say more often. I don't have time to tell you. He's bringing it to a close. He's saying, um, I don't have enough time to keep going on and on. But if I chose to, I could go all day. The writer of Hebrews is hinting that if you wanted to spell out the details of these stories of faith, that our spiritual history is full of such stories. That the story of the people of God is absolutely the story of faith. And so what he's saying is, if I wanted to, I could go on, but there's just too many to detail. And he just throws out a random grouping of names. Six names which don't come in any particular order. Now, David and Samuel for sure are household names, even for us thousands of years later. But these other four guys, they were all judges in the early part of Israel's history. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, they were men called judges before Israel had a king. They served as temporary situational leaders of the people of God. When a crisis hit and leadership was needed, God would raise up somebody to stand and lead the charge, and then that person, after a while, would just not be a leader anymore, and they would wait for another leader to be needed. He doesn't even put them in chronological order. It's as if he's saying, here's just four random names just to give you a sampling. I could throw a dart anywhere in Israel's history. And what I'll hit is a story of faith. Because the people we remember are not people who are extraordinary in their accomplishments, but extraordinary in that in the face of great adversity, somehow they managed to hang on to a faith in God. Maybe you're not familiar with all these names. Let me give you a quick, quick historical review. Gideon was a guy who was called to lead Israel's army, but he was a chicken. This is a guy who God said, you're going to lead? He goes, ah, no, I'm not. And he was afraid. He was insecure. To make things worse, he was facing a massive Midianite army, and he had 32,000 men under his command, and God said, you got too many. I want you to take those 32,000 and shrink it down to 300. This is the original 300, not King Leonidas of the Spartans, but the first 300. And then he said, and by the way, I don't even want you to strap on swords. I want these 300 guys to be armed with torches hidden inside clay jars. That's how we're going to defeat the enemy. And so that's what they did. And in the middle of the night, they set the camp on fire. They blew on trumpets, and the entire enemy camp was in turmoil. And they beat a massive army with 300 men because they obeyed God. Barak was also a commander of the armed forces. Not, not the Barak now in America, but... This guy faced a confederate army of Canaanite kings led by a man named Sisera. And they were supported by 900 iron chariots. Those were the olden day tanks. This is basically a modest force of light infantry going up against an armed company, an armored company. It was suicide to go against 900 iron chariots. And yet that's what God asked him to do. Now, once again, Barak believed God, but he was kind of scared. So he said to the prophetess Deborah, it seems like wherever you go, God shows favor. So I'm not going to fight unless you stand in the battlefield with us. And so Deborah, as a prophetess, said, that's fine. I see that you believe in God, but you're trying to hedge your bets. So at the end of the day, you will win the battle, 
but the honor and glory will go to a woman and not to you. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Samson we know about. Long-haired Samson. Endowed with supernatural, superhuman strength and charisma. Everyone who crossed Samson's path was like, that's a real man. Remember the old days when Fabio was on those commercials and you're like, is that guy even the same? He's that perfect skin, this chiseled face, long flowing hair, pecs and abs. And you're like, am I even male? We had to make fun of him just to feel comfortable about how superior he appeared compared to the rest of us. And Samson was like that. But he always had a weakness for the ladies. And throughout his life, he was passionate, impetuous. He made really foolish decisions, and he could not resist the charms of foreign women. He was seduced into humiliation and captivity, but at the end of his life, God blessed him with one last act of supernatural faith and led him to victory. And there's Jephthah, called to face a massive army of Ammonites, And he had a deep conviction that God would give Israel the victory, but he wanted to hedge his bets. And so he did something foolish. He made an extra vow that was totally unnecessary. He knew that God was going to give the victory, but he said, just in case, let me just make a vow that God, I swear, if you let us win, when I come home in victory, the first thing that walks out of my house, I'm going to kill it as a sacrifice to you. And he wins. And he comes home, the first thing to walk out of his house is his beloved only child, his daughter. And he says to himself, what have I done? I promised to kill the first thing that walks out of my door. Why did I even need to say the words? God would have given me the victory if I just believed. Why did I feel the need to hedge my bets and add that extra little promise? And his daughter, understanding the situation, said, Dad, you made a vow, you got to keep it. Only let me walk around for two weeks mourning with my friends that I'm going to die before I ever get to be married. It's one of the most heartbreaking stories in all of Scripture. And the reason I've given you this historical survey is to show you something about the Bible that I've always loved. The Bible is shockingly honest about how imperfect God's people have always been. Aren't you glad that he doesn't retell the story of six men who were just perfect and flawless in everything they did. Samuel was a mess. His two sons were the worst scoundrels in Israel, even though he was the leading spiritual leader of the time. Everyone knows what David's problems were. You could write novels on all the problems in David's household and how many generations followed a total dysfunction because of the sin in David's life. What I love about the Bible is that it doesn't hold back in showing us that the people God used were a mess. And that even though this is a survey of the heroes of faith, those four judges especially wrestled with faith all the way to the end. And just like us, they were torn inside because at the the one hand, they totally believed God. And on the other hand, it was really hard to believe God. Now, I know that sounds like a contradiction, but doesn't that sound like the way you feel so much of the time? That if you really push me, and I'm walking into a hospital room, and this is a scenario that I have been a part of so many times more than I care to recount. Walking into the hospital room with a grieving family, terrified at the diagnosis just handed to them, they're saying, would you come and pray for healing? 
As I walk into that room and I love these people and I know the fear they must be feeling. And they're looking to me as the man of God, come and pray. And I am ripped in, in half in my heart by a deep conviction that God can heal. By a terror that maybe he won't show up. That maybe it's his will that this story should not end the way we would want it to end. And so just like these heroes of faith, we believe, but we wrestle with unbelief all the time. The reason they're remembered in this survey of history is because despite the struggle, somehow by God's grace, in the end, they placed their trust in the hands of God. Faith never came easily to them, but in the end, the truth is, faith doesn't come easily to anybody. It is not an easy thing to have faith in this world. Life is hard. God so often feels far away. And even though you believe, you don't believe perfectly. So the author of Hebrews shows us, I'm not going to hide the fact that in the end, even these heroes of faith really struggled to believe in God. The reason we remember their names is because in the end, faith carried the day. They believed, no matter how difficult it was. And then he, he seems to suggest, there are countless stories I could tell, but let me just summarize in a rapid-fire list all the ways that people who came before us exercised faith and watched God at work. And he begins to run down this list, and let me run down this list with you. He says they conquered kingdoms meaning these large systems that seemed immovable, and yet they were able to change the landscape of power in their land. Not only did they conquer, but they administered justice. And part of administering justice is making very difficult decisions that will always make some people happy and others very unhappy. If you've ever been in the unenviable position of leading through a controversial decision, you know how hard it is, how much faith is required slam the gavel down and say, this is the ruling, and half of you are going to want to hate me for it. They gained what was promised. Not the great promise of a Messiah, but there were so many promises that God gave his people that they held on to, and because they believed to the end, they got it. You would not believe how many Christians, how many people of God, faced death at the hand of wild beasts. And there were times in Israel's history where because people believed in God, the mouths of lions were shut. Now, it just sounds so far from anything we would experience in our culture. But every now and then you read those stories of an irresponsible parent who lets their kid fall over the edge into, into a, uh, the, the lion display at the zoo. And, you know, you hear these stories and you think, what would you do in that situation if your child fell into the lion pit at the zoo? You'd pray. And you'd pray hoping that a miracle would happen. And over and over in the history of God's people, things like this occurred. They quenched the fear of the flames. Who, who do you think you're thinking of? Three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But so many of God's people over human history have been burned at the stake because of what they believed. Some escaped the edge of the sword. They were sentenced to death and narrowly escaped execution. Others saw weakness turn into strength. Do you remember Samson at the end of his life, 
eyes gouged out, hair chopped off, completely powerless, when all his life he had been so strong and powerful. And he prayed to God in the midst of his weakest point. God gives him one last surge of supernatural power. And he brings down the stadium. And he gets the victory for God. They became powerful in battle. And they routed foreign armies. And I can't quite express to you enough how hard it is for us to appreciate that as Americans. Because when you've lived your whole life in a superpower... It's sort of like, can you imagine me and LeBron playing one-on-one and LeBron being nervous about the outcome of that game? See, I don't think LeBron's going to be like, Lord, give me the victory. And the... It's a foregone conclusion, and that's the way war has always been to us as Americans. America goes to war. Do we ever bite our nails and go, I wonder how this is going to turn out? Do you think we'll win? Of course we're going to win. And if we can't win with tanks and soldiers, we'll just nuke you. You're dead. Either way, we win every time. We've grown up all our lives, most of us, in a situation where that was the truth. When's the last time we ever faced a foreign army against which we were equals and the outcome was uncertain? And yet God's people again and again in history have had to face that situation, not knowing who would have the victory at the end of the day. And yet through faith, they watched God give them sometimes unimaginable, unexplainable victories against much larger forces. And it says that some people, women in particular, even received back their dead. That's an important statement because for women who in those days found so much of their well-being and welfare in being associated to a husband who would provide for them, in a day when women were not allowed to work for a living, when a woman was widowed, she also became destitute. And yet through faith, God would sometimes raise the dead and a woman would regain her husband or her children. So that's, that's the first ten items in this long list of the products of faith. But then he continues with the list. Some refused to be released and faced torture. Some faced jeers and flogging. And let me just tell you, this is probably among the most harmless sounding on this list. But when it, when it says jeers, it's not talking about people lying the streets and went, nah, 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 boo, boo. You know, it wasn't like teasing. It was a kind of mockery that stung. Chains and imprisonment. Death by stoning. When I was a little kid, I thought stoning was people taking little pebbles and just pelting you with them. And it's really irritating, but you could survive. What I didn't realize about stoning was they took baseball or softball-sized rocks and hurled them at you. And usually the first couple broke some bones crushed or fractured parts of your skull and you would fall to a heap while they just threw those rocks until you were buried under a pile of stones. Some were sawed in two. There's some younger people among us. I don't want to... Just picture something like that and you begin to understand what horrors people endured because of their faith. Some were killed by the sword. Here's another harmless sounding one, but... They wore sheepskin and goatskins, which was a symbol for complete poverty. Because of their choice to believe in God, they endured horrible poverty as a result. They were persecuted 
and mistreated. They wandered through deserts and mountains and lived in caves and in holes in the ground. In other words, they were not just poor, but often they were homeless. Do you notice a pattern in this list of the fruit of faith? All of these things happened to people whose lives were marked by an unshaken faith in God. But I see a pattern in these two lists. And I think most people reading them can divide divide these 20 items into two distinct groupings. On the one hand, you've got those who had faith and they triumphed. They're the winners. Because they had faith, the story ended well. And on the other side, you have the tragedies, the losers, those who had faith and paid dearly for it. Both groups had faith in God, but the outcome of their lives was very different. That's always been the case for the people of God. We like to think that the proper and reasonable outcome of faith is always going to be benefit to us, that if we, have, if we only have faith, the story will always end for us. And being Americans, every one of our movies is like that, isn't it? Does anybody ever wonder going to an American movie, does the hero make it? Is there any mystery in American cinema? If it's Korean cinema, there's no mystery that everyone dies and you're going to cry. It's just as sad as you could possibly be, and then on top of that, it's sadder. That's Korean cinema. American cinema is we're not allowed to ever be sad. We can fake worry, oh, he's hanging from a cliff with one finger, but he's going to live because it's America. And Americans never lose. The hero always wins. He survives. Even if he dies, the hand pops out of the rubble. And if it doesn't, you know there's going to be a sequel. (laughs) See, the truth is that this is the way everyone in the world thinks about life. The way people in the world analyze a human life is entirely on the basis of whether it had a happy ending or a sad ending, on whether the circumstances of that life will be labeled a triumph or a tragedy, so that when someone is killed, when someone gets sick, when someone becomes poor and destitute, the immediate assumption is, oh man, poor guy, his life's a mess, God must have withdrawn his favor. He must have done something wrong. It's the same thing that that Job and all his friends and his own wife kept whispering to him. What happened to you? Look how bad your life just got. You used to have everything. And now look, you have nothing. How else do we interpret something like that other than to say that for the winners, God's with them. For the losers, God left the room. And the truth is, Apart from the scriptures and what it reveals about life and God, that's the way everybody thinks, by instinct. It's the sanest way to interpret life. That the measure of human life is if it's happy, God's there. If it's sad, God left. So that we measure whether we had real faith or not based on how happy the outcomes are. Surely, if I have faith, every story in my life will end happily. But these lists remind us that if you have real faith in a real God, at least half the time your story may not end the way you want. 
What is that telling us? Because the world sees life as a grand drama, and the verdict will either be tragedy or comedy, sad face or happy face. But what God seems to be saying is that that's not really the interesting story of any human life. Every life will end, and every single human life will take one of those two available paths. It will end in loss, or it will end in triumph, but it will end. And the real story of every human life is not whether it ended on a high note or on a low note, but whether or not along the journey, that person managed to find their way to God and come to place their ultimate trust in Him. What Jesus once said was, even if you gain the whole world, and the world crowns you the undisputed champion of life, you could still end up losing your soul. And what good would that be? That the real story of a human life is not whether it ends well or ends poorly, but whether faith marked that journey. This tension between winners and losers, tragedy and comedy is so perfectly illustrated for us in a conversation that Job had with his wife at the height of his agony. These are the times when you want your wife to stand by you and say, don't worry about it. God is faithful. We'll get through this. But instead, his wife is standing by him. Here's what she says to him. Idiot. I I added the word idiot because I just picture, how, how could she not say idiot? You idiot, are you still maintaining your integrity? What he means, what she means is, are you still defending God, trying to find meaning in this? Curse God and die. Because that's what he's done to you. He's cursed you. Curse him back and die, you old fool. And Job replies, you are talking like a foolish woman. Let me just pause there because I know that some husbands wish they could say those words out loud. You're not allowed to, ever. But just for a moment, let's just relish that. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in that one statement, that one simple statement, what that reveals is that in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. God was pleased with Job's perspective on the ups and downs, the radical shifts in his life. That whether he had everything or whether he had nothing, the one common thread running through Job's life was that he somehow managed to find God in both situations. How sad is the person who can only see God in times of plenty, who can only see God when life is going well, and when life stops going well, God becomes invisible to them. But the thing is, Job's wife represents the vast majority of the human race. That we see not God, but happiness. And that our true God is well-being, not the God of the universe. And I know this because as soon as things get rough, the doubts overwhelm us. And our faith is deeply shaken. What Job reveals is what I believe the writer of Hebrews is trying to reveal that the truest story of your life and my life is not whether you have everything or you lose everything, but whether somewhere along the journey you manage to lay hold of God and you never lose that faith. 
Because that's the only story that matters. Every life ends. But not every life ends in faith. And I opened this slide deck with an image. You know where this is. This is the Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. And there's something about the uniformity and the peacefulness of this setting. Every headstone looking almost identical. Laid out in neat military governmental rows. For me, as an OCD person, there's something soothing about the way that that place looks. So symmetrical, so orderly. But you know what? The uniformity of those headstones doesn't tell the whole story. In order to be buried there, you have had to serve your country in some distinct way. And under each of those headstones is a human story, a life that ended. Some of those lives ended in war. Some of those lives ended with the final moments being completely consumed in violence and suffering and pain. Some of the people buried under those clean, tidy, white headstones died horrible deaths. Their last thoughts, their last sensations on earth were of inconceivable suffering and pain. And that was the last thing they felt before they died. Other lives finished their service, lived to a ripe old age. They prospered. They died surrounded in peace by family and friends, leaving a legacy for the next generation. But when you look at this, all you see are neat rows of white headstones. And that's a good allegory for the truth about human life. Every life ends Some end tragically, some end in peace and triumph, but they all end. The one thread that binds all of those lives together is that each of them serve their country and they finish their term of service with honor. That's the one common thread by which you get to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And because many politicians are buried there, it's debatable whether honor is really that meaningful anymore, but the truth is, You have to finish with an honorable discharge, with with having served your country without scandal and without crime. The same could be said for pretty much every cemetery in the world. That under those neat rows of headstones, in that serene park-like environment, it doesn't tell the true story of all the lives buried there. Many of those lives ended tragically. Many ended in peace. But the only real story that mattered was whether there was this common thread of faith woven through their lives. Viewed through the lens of faith and of the important part of the journey of finding God in the course of our lives, I would look at those lists again and offer you two different headings. That the people who experienced the things on the left side were delivered by God from their trouble. And the people on the right side were delivered by God in their trouble. Both were delivered. Both met their God waiting for them on the other side of death. Trouble is an inescapable part of life. Some of us will find rescue here and now. Others won't find it until the grave and beyond But in the end, with faith, God is the one common denominator 
in both stories of tragedy and triumph is that through faith, regardless of the situation, you can find God. And God shows himself to us in both. We're so afraid as Americans of any suffering, of any trial, we think it will unravel us, it will undo us. And if we don't worry about ourselves, we will make it our children's issue. I can't subject my kids to this. What choice do you have? To be alive is to face trouble all the time. You can't run from it. Some of us will die in it. But here's the beautiful part of that. is that God is real and he can be found in either story. The whole point of Hebrews 11 is that it is meant as an illustration to encourage the readers of something that the writer wrote at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what he says. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith. And listen to this. And God says, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a scattered community of Jewish converts to Christianity. And what he understood was that these people he was writing to were about to face a season of terrible rising persecution. That what used to be a fairly peaceful and easy life was not going to be peaceful nor easy any longer. And I'm struck as I look at all these black t-shirts on this side of the room, at the youth group, that we are lovingly raising with prayer and care. That the America and the world you guys are going to grow up in is going to look nothing like the America I grew up in. I really believe that a time is coming where it won't be so comfortable to stand for God in this world. So I'm saying to you the way the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people. The times are coming that are going to really test anyone's ability to believe in God. Already, it feels like foolishness to talk about belief in God in this world. People will laugh at you for even suggesting it. They'll say you're like a throwback to another era. And if you make life choices that line up with righteousness, you'll be mocked. And someday, I think in the near future, you will pay a heavier price than insults. So the writer of Hebrews says to these people, such times are coming. Stand fast. Don't give up your faith because that's the only way you're going to survive it is to see a real God and never stop believing. And then he gives this whole survey of the heroes of faith to say, and you can do it because countless others have come before you and faced greater adversity than you, and they made it to the end in faith. So be encouraged as possible. 
You don't have to give up because it's hard. People have faced worse than you're facing and they held on to their faith in God. It is meant to encourage us that it is possible not to lose God in the face of a horrible life. I don't know how familiar you are with Apocrypha. It is part of the Bible in the Catholic Church. The Protestant Church has not recognized it as part of the Bible. But I think it is still superior writing to most Christian literature today. It doesn't carry the same authority as the rest of Scripture, but you will get more out of reading Apocrypha than you will out of reading the top 20 bestsellers in Christian literature today. And one of the books in the Apocrypha is The Wisdom of Solomon. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 of that particular writing, it offers encouragement to those who have lost loved ones to martyrdom as a result of what they believed. Here's what it says. The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be an affliction. And they're going from us to be their destruction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. That's beautiful. The people the world thought they'd rid themselves of were the true victors. They were the ones who won. This is meant for us as a word of encouragement that losing in the world's eyes is not losing. It's only God's verdict that matters. Let me wrap up by saying this. One of the last verses in this chapter says that these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. It's as if the writer of Hebrews is marveling at how all of these Old Testament saints held on to their faith even though the Messiah that was promised never showed up in their lifetime. Do you realize how hard it is to hang on to faith when you don't see rescue coming? Some of us are nearing the end of our rope. I've heard the words, I can't do it anymore. So often spoken in our church. And and I feel the weight of those words. I know exactly where you are. I've wanted to shout those words myself. Where the weight of what you're facing is so heavy, it's the most honest thing you can say is, I can't do it anymore. There's no way I've endured it as long as it's humanly possible. I don't think I can keep going without dying. I've reached the end of my rope. There's nothing left of me to offer because I've held on and rescue never has come. How can you tell me to put my faith in a God who doesn't seem to show up? How can I bank only on His promises? Show me the money. God says He will come. When will He come? When? And all I can tell you is he says, I will. Will you wait? And so the writer of Hebrews marvels that these Old Testament saints who in their whole lifetimes held on to a promise and never saw that promise fulfilled. He says, if they held on in their faith without seeing the Savior, 
the implication is clear. How much more those of us who have seen Jesus Christ? The Messiah has come. We don't put our faith in a Savior who might come one day. We put our faith in a Savior who came, who crossed the great divide to live among us. And so 500 years ago, the great reformer of the church, John Calvin, wrote these words. A tiny spark of light led them to heaven. But now that the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuse shall we offer if we still cling to earth? You can turn off the slides for now. Let me just finish this talk this way. I sometimes feel my skin crawling when I sit in a room with somebody whose life is being ripped apart. And I don't say my skin is crawling because your pain makes me uncomfortable, but my skin is crawling because what I, what I am bound by honor to say to you feels sometimes impossible to say. And when somebody has endured their pain for so long and is desperately crying out for hope, and what they're saying is, I don't think I can go another day. And I look at them and I say, hang on. Have faith. God is coming. He is the God who saves. He will rescue you. This too shall pass. If not in this life, then in the life to come, you will be free of this. And I, as a pastor, have been in the place of saying those words to people in terrible pain over and over and over. If I did not spend time each day trying to see the face of Jesus Christ, I don't think I could say those words anymore. Because the truth is, your pain feels so real to me. And as you describe what you're going through, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a human being. And what I'm playing around in my head the whole time I'm listening to you is, how long would I last in their shoes? How far could I go if I traded places with them? Could I hear the words I'm about to say and not punch me in the face? And I think I would have punched me in the face many, many times. If I didn't see God, I could never speak those words to any of you. Here's the amazing thing that happens when I do spend time with God and every now and then he breaks through the dark and he breaks through the fog and I see him. And I see glory. And it's because of those moments, I feel like I can still say to my brothers and sisters, you just hang on. Because God is not an idea. He's not someone we imagined and conjured up. He is real. And when he says he's coming, he's going to come. And if your rescue doesn't come before the grave, it will surely come after. But if you gain the whole world and lose him, You've lost too much. Your life is going to end one day. If that comes as a surprise to you, 
I'm sorry to give you the spoiler, but look, you're going to die. I'm going to die. What's the real story of your life going to be? You died in triumph or you died in tragedy? Who cares? Everybody goes down one of those two roads. Everyone walks through one of those two doors. The only story that will ever matter is whether you find God on the journey. Whether you come to a place where you can put your whole trust in Jesus Christ. I feel so urgently for our youth group. Because I think that perhaps it could be argued that you live in the most unserious generation of Americans who have ever lived in America. <laughs> you kids are extraordinary, but you're weird in your generation, let me tell you. <laughs> you live in a generation where being an idiot is cool. We're taking suicidal risks, charged up with Red Bull and strapping on a GoPro makes you a hero. We're thinking too much is stupid. We're believing in something is antiquated. And finding your way to the Savior in this generation is going to prove difficult. But I hope you make it. And I have faith in God that he has already revealed himself to you. And you know who he is. Don't let anyone take him away from you. Why don't we just pray? Let's, let's just bow. When I was in my 30s, I went to Moody Church to listen to John Piper preach. And any of you know who John Piper is, you understand, he's about as serious a human being as the United States has produced in the last 100 years. It's like Jonathan Edwards got reborn as a guy in Minnesota. I don't picture him ever laughing. <laughs> and, you know, he feels the weight of God's glory in a world that is so profane. But in my 30s, I couldn't identify with him. He stood in Moody Church, and here's what he said in his sermon. It was a, it was a pastor's conference, and he said to all of us, Men of God, you really only have one job in this world, and that is to help your people die well. And I remember as a 30-something-year-old pastor going, dude, lighten up. Why so heavy? Now I'm almost 50, and I see the wisdom of those words. You don't need any help enjoying life, laughing for a while. But what he said is so true. We're all going to die, but we're not all going to die well. Some of us will go kicking and screaming in terror at what lies beyond. Completely unprepared for that final step of the journey. Because we've never taken God seriously along the way. And now we're about to meet Him. 
we're not sure we've studied for that exam. And so I understand now that that is my job. To acknowledge that each of us will die. And it's my prayer and my heart's burden that I will be faithful to that call and help us to die well. That's not morbid. It's just real. So I'm going to invite you now in the quiet of this moment to sit before God and listen to what he may be saying to your heart. And if you feel the weight of something that you need to say to him, say it now in prayer. In just a moment, I'll close for us. But let's just sit before God in prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.